their products using this eye-catching theme. It doesn't matter what type of product, from car oil to fast food to furniture. They all use sex. After all, sex sells, doesn't it? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat and his guest, Michael Craven, will discuss the sexualization of America and how it affects our culture. Now with today's message is Pat Zucran. We've been talking about sexual ethics and the sexual immorality we're seeing pervasive in our culture, in Western culture. And that's a very important subject because in Romans chapter 1, Paul opens by saying that God is justified in judging mankind and delivering his wrath on mankind because they knew all about God through his law embedded in our conscience through creation, yet man knowingly rejected the knowledge of God. And it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires over to their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Sexual immorality is the result of people's rejection of God and His law, and His judgment comes upon cultures that do that. So it's, it's a very critical topic. Well, what can we as Christians do about it? Well, last week we had uh, Dan Bailey from Just Say Yes, and this week we have another great guest. We have Michael Craven, the Vice President of the Religious and Cultural Affairs for the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families. You may recognize his name and his organization. They led the campaign against uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, winner catalog. And so it's a great privilege for us to have him on the show today. Welcome, Michael, to the show. Pat, it's good to be with you. Well, Michael, how do you explain the radical shift in sexual ethics that has occurred in the last four decades here in America and in Western culture? Well, I think that's an important question, and unfortunately it's a question that is uh, uh, rarely asked. Uh, but I've spent a great deal of time examining that question, and if, if, if you really trace the origin of the sexual revolution, it did not begin in the 1960s. It merely came to fruition in the 1960s. Uh, to understand its origins, you have to really go back to the 19th century. Um, philosophers such as Rousseau, who had a profound impact prior to that, obviously, um, and sort of introducing some new ideas as it relates to morality and the source of moral order. Uh, but it was really Sigmund Freud that took that concept and really solidified it in the minds of Americans uh, by introducing the idea that, that sexual morality in particular was an artificially constructed concept. And as such, it functioned in a very repressive manner. Uh, that it was responsible for producing guilt, and this guilt in turn led to pathological and self-destructive behaviors uh, and did harm to what he referred to as the libido. Mm. So the solution in the mind of Freud was we needed to not hold the standard and encourage people, teach people, train people to adhere to, live by that standard, not only for the sake of society but for also for their own sake. Uh, rather, what he offered was we just need to throw the rules out the window because they're causing harm. Yeah, and behind that was a naturalistic worldview that really rejected the idea of God and said that man is not created in the image of God with this embedded 
moral law code. He's just the evolved animal. Isn't that right? That's right. And and uh, and sexuality was seen as a quote unquote natural drive, just like a an animal, uh, an animalistic drive. Uh, what it did not recognize was that that natural drive was also tainted by or affected by the fall of man. Uh, and therefore, humans, human beings, humanity, needed to exercise a certain degree of restraint over those natural desires. Uh, obviously, we as people cannot live uh, in harmony if we simply give in to all of our natural urges and desires. We have to exercise some degree of restraint. Yeah, and Freud's ideas were flawed uh, as history has shown, but really we haven't uh, rid ourselves of his ideas. They continue to play out in our culture today. Why don't you tell us how it continued to escalate uh, well, over the following uh, century? Throughout the uh, the 20th century, a number of people uh, began to build on Freud's ideas. Um, probably the most notable following Freud would be Margaret Sanger, who uh, was the founder of what would later become Planned Parenthood. And what she offered was nothing less than a doctrine of salvation. In fact, she wrote that through sex, mankind may attain the great spiritual illumination that will ultimately light up the only path to an earthly paradise. Uh, so you see the, the, the foundations of a utopian worldview being very clearly articulated in her mind. Uh, and, and this was the impetus for her um, advocacy for birth control, for abortion. Um, she was a eugenicist. Uh, really advocating the use of birth control to what she termed limit the reproduction of the lower races and encourage the reproduction of the higher races. Uh, she was a profound racist, as are most eugenicists. Uh, but following Margaret Sanger came Alfred Kinsey, who I would argue is the granddaddy of them all and uh, the father of the sexual revolution that burst onto the scene in the 1960s. Because Kinsey, through his uh, monumental works on male and female sexuality in 1948 and 1953, literally began to change the way we as Americans viewed sexual conduct. And uh, by convincing most of Americans that this, this idea that we held at the time, that we were a generally moral people, particularly in the area of sexual ethics, um, he, he sought to shatter that illusion um, and he did so by producing scientific data that was clearly manipulated, uh, that was driven by a very deep ideological bias. Uh, a case in point, for example, he, uh, he argued that in 1953, 22% of married women were having abortions. 90% uh, of single women who became pregnant were having abortions. What he did not reveal is that the subject women in his study were all engaged in the business of prostitution. And the only distinction between an unmarried woman and a married woman was any woman that had lived with a man for more than a year he put into the married category. So this is how he manipulated his data. Wow. Michael, this is very important because we tend to blame the 60s on all this when actually the 60s saw some fruition of something that had gone before. Right. I, I think the 60s could be, uh, could be easily explained as the, the, the logical conclusion of this building ideology in American culture. Um, and it just burst forth, if you will. Uh, these ideas began to percolate through the university system. Uh, the, the whole concept that morality was repressive, it was artificially constructed, that we were individually autonomous moral beings and we could determine our own path. Uh, that there was some inherent good within us that would guide us, that we could look to. Um, 
and, and all of which has been demonstrated in a resounding fashion to be completely and totally false. Uh, all you need to do is look at the consequences of the sexual revolution to see that that's the case. Yeah, and what are some of those consequences, Michael? Well, I think most people would be surprised to learn that today in America we have the highest rate of unmarried teenage pregnancy in the world. Approximately 2,700 teenagers become pregnant every single day in this country. We have the highest rate of sexually transmitted disease in the industrialized world among the industrialized nations, uh, with approximately 68 million Americans currently infected and another 15-plus million new cases each and every year, with the fastest-growing segment of those being infected uh, under the age of 25. This is in the wake of, of almost four decades of safe sex education, um, you've seen a complete erosion of marriage. Marriage as a choice has declined 27% since 1960. Uh, 49% of all American households today are single-parent households. Um, illegitimate birth. In 1960, 5% of all births in this country were born out of wedlock. By the year 2000, that figure had reached almost 33%. In fact, it has surpassed divorce as the leading cause of single-parenthood in America. Wow, yeah, those are some devastating uh, consequences, and they have repercussions for all of society. I mean, a lot of people are saying, hey, what I do in the bedroom, my sex life, it doesn't matter to anyone else. That's just a private thing. But what we're seeing here, really, it affects all culture and society financially, morally, spiritually, in, in, in every way. Tremendously. And, and, and this is why the institution of marriage is so important. And this is, this is an aspect of marriage that I think we have, uh, we have lost in contemporary times, an understanding of marriage that I believe we have lost in contemporary times. And that is that marriage, that, that's the central biblical sexual ethic. Uh, it is the relationship that is, that is designed for and intended to um, restrain sexual behavior, that sex is exclusive to that relationship. And once we began to extend sexual opportunities outside that relationship, we have seen deleterious societal consequences, and we will continue to. Wow. Well, Michael, what role have Christians played in allowing uh, this to happen, this revolution to be sweeping across Western culture in America? Well, I think, uh, I think we've played a major role. I think oftentimes we want to look outside the church and, and uh, suggest that uh, all that is going wrong in the world is the result of bad people doing bad things, when I would argue that in America a lot of it has to do with the fact that God's people are not doing God's things. Uh, you take, for example, the ideology that, that, that began with Rousseau and was, was uh, solidified through men like uh, Freud and Sanger, uh, couple that with the growing anti-intellectualism of the 20th century church, I think the church was, was, was barely equipped to even recognize um, these philosophies, these ideologies as they approach the culture, uh, much less stand against them in a way that was reasonable and rational. That is so sad. Them. That's so sad. Yeah. Because, you know, the church has always led. We've always done the big, heavy thinking in church history. And all of a sudden, we gave up that territory to the secularists, said, you guys go ahead and think, we're going to feel kind of a thing, when we needed to be doing both. We did, absolutely. I think it, I think it is one of the fundamental problems uh, in our culture today uh, is the fact that Christians did one of two things. We either withdrew from the culture uh, or we conformed to the culture. And I would argue that, that the, uh, the same motivation drove us in either direction, and it was a fear of not being able to give an answer to these things that were confronting biblical truth. 
when, when people were challenging the ideas of, of moral authority and the source of morality and is mankind inherently good, Christians were not equipped to answer those challenges in a way that was, um, that was persuasive, that was intelligent, that was rational. And so we either withdrew, we either withdrew into the Christian subculture or we conformed to the culture. We stopped being an influential force in the culture, ideologically speaking, in other words. Yes, we're here with Michael Craven from the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families, and we've been talking about the sexualizing of America. And we've identified the problem, the trend, how it arose, and how it took over, swept across Western culture. Well, Michael, what is the solution for reversing the erosion for the sexual morality, the state of sexual morality here in America? Well, that's a tough question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Demanding large answers. I think the first thing, uh, obviously, uh, unfortunately, uh, many of these philosophies and ideologies have crept into the church itself. Uh, We have, to a large extent, unwittingly embraced some of these paradigms. And in doing so, we we find ourselves in in, in a situation of compromise. Premarital sex, cohabitation, um, divorce, all of these things seem to be areas where the church is living in exact consistency with the world. Uh, so this is one of the first things that we need to change. We need to, we need to understand what does God's Word tell us about sexuality, about marriage, relationships. Uh, we need to teach our children the truth about marriage. We need to teach our children the truth about sexuality. Uh, we don't need to leave that up to the public school system, for goodness sakes. Uh, and, and we need to give our kids an argument that holds marriage up as the institution that God intended it to be, that it is better. Um, yeah, what, what we don't understand and what we don't pass on to our kids is not God is not opposed to sex. He's not opposed to sexual pleasure. Uh, God is the creator of sex. What God is opposed to is the abandonment of those with whom we have sex. That's why he created this relationship of marriage to, to have this commitment that binds men and women together for a lifetime. Uh, this is the only relationship that provides the emotional security and safety for truly free sexuality. Uh, that's real sexual freedom. What the culture offers is not sexual freedom. It's sexual bondage. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things uh, we keep saying at Pro Ministries is if you look in the book of Acts, the church was able to impact and transform the culture around them because they could outlove and outthink the culture around them. And when you've got those two combinations, that's an f- unbeatable combination. And uh, what we're saying here is the church has somehow lost that ability to really outthink the culture around them when they do have God's truth right there. And both of those are important because you can outthink them and, not, and do it in a non-loving way that could be counterproductive. So we need both. We need grace and truth, don't we? That's right. It's what, uh, what Schaefer referred to as the ultimate apologetic, was the love of Christ. And uh, I think if Christians can combine an intelligent defense of their faith, edify their own faith, understand why we believe what we believe, and that we believe it to be the objective truth of reality, uh, and communicate on those terms to, uh, to an unbelieving world, but couple that with more demonstration of the gospel and less simply expression of the gospel. Um, uh, you, you point to the first, first century uh, Christians and, and what they did in the world and how they impacted the world and how they ultimately um, uh, overcame the Roman Empire. Uh, and they didn't do it through military conquest. They conquered the Roman Empire by love. 
uh, their overwhelming love that they displayed to an unbelieving world. Michael, this gets to methodology then. When we confront the culture and when we confront things like the halftime at Super Bowl, Abercrombie and Fitch, MTV, and, and, and Girls Gone Wild, uh, how do we do that in a way that would be compelling and effective because we are known, Christians are known as the boycott religion in today's culture? Right. I think uh, one of the first things that I try to do is is remind myself that, uh, that 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 those living in sin are not my enemy. Satan is my enemy, uh, and those are people that are in bondage, like I was once in bondage. And uh, and my prayer is that God would give me an overwhelming uh, sense of love and compassion for those people, uh, to really reach out to them for the purposes of helping them, helping guide them to the truth. Uh, and I think that changes our, our, our attitude from the get-go, uh, away from one that is condemning to one that is persuasive, one that is inviting, one that is caring and compassionate. Um, and, and, and for me, I find that to be an absolutely essential uh, attitude to take on before I, I, I speak to an unbelieving culture. Yeah, that is really important. You know, it seems that, uh, you know, there's the term being used, the battle that we're engaged in, or these combative terms between Christians and the secular world. And it's really... Culture wars. Right, you know, and it, and it's, it really, um, you know, divides the Christian church from the world and really uh, impedes the ability for Christians to really impact. Because as you mentioned, what you really want to do is open up dialogue and really be persuasive, not uh, confrontative, but persuasive right. in what you're saying and what you're articulating. Well, and I think we have to remind ourselves of what is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to create a, a moral society, a moral culture. Uh, that is a collateral benefit of creating a godly culture. Uh, and that's got to remain our ultimate goal is expanding the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, and we cannot let political squabbles, cultural squabbles, get in the way of that ultimate objective. Um, and I think that's very, very important to keep in the back of our minds. Don't we kind of uh, act as a preservative in a lot of ways, though, as the church? We do. By, um, by, by, by making a, a moral, moral statements and, and not being moralistic about it. And I'm not saying that, but uh, doing our best to try to preserve the culture so that we can bring people to Christ. Absolutely. We have a profound responsibility, I believe, to be engaged in the culture and influencing the culture. But I think it's important that we understand uh, that today we live in a post-Christian culture. We no longer live in Christendom, and that should influence how we speak to this culture. We have to be very, very careful. Colossians tells us that we are to be very careful in how we deal with outsiders, seeking every opportunity. And I believe the opportunity implied there is the opportunity to guide them to the truth. Uh, so they're watching how we speak as well as what it is that we're saying. And oftentimes we're, we're either saying the right thing but not saying it in the right way, or we're not saying the right thing and we're saying it in the right way. Oh, well, give us an example of this. Uh, you led the campaign against Abercrombie and Fitch, the distribution of that winner catalog, which was pretty much pornographic. Now, tell us how you apply these principles uh, in that campaign. Well, I think uh, Abercrombie and Fitch is a, is a great example of how I think we can communicate to uh, an unbelieving culture in a way that is persuasive. Um, and, and our approach with Abercrombie and Fitch was not to be moralistic. We certainly did not want to resort to religious rhetoric. Uh, but we felt like Abercrombie and Fitch was communicating a very clearly defined philosophy of sexual hedonism. 
And that philosophy was intended to influence, and it was intended to influence their target audience, which were younger people uh, under the age of 25. And so we set about the task of helping people understand precisely what is the philosophy and ideology that is being communicated through these images, through the content that was included in their catalog. And, and in doing that, any rational, reasonable person could see that's precisely what they were doing. And most people, Christian and non-Christian, would go, wait a minute, I don't want my children learning this. I don't believe in this philosophy. I don't embrace this philosophy. I certainly don't want to impart this to my children. Uh, and we were able to transcend the Christian subculture uh, as well as the Christian media and, and get into mainstream media uh, and talk to the culture at large in a way that I believe ultimately proved persuasive. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the CEOs and leaders of Abercrombie and Fitch, they're family men and family women. You know, so presenting a case as you did, not bashing them overhead with uh, Bible verses and things, created a great dialogue, didn't it? It I did. Ju- I just have to applaud you. I think that. Uh, you handled it so well, and you were largely responsible for so much of that, Michael, of, of writing these arguments out in a clear, compelling, persuasive way. Right. And uh, you know what? Uh, it worked. Yeah. It worked. So we, we, we've seen that it works, and I like, I like to get a victory every once in a while because every once in a while it feels like we're up against a juggernaut. <laughs> yeah. A very large juggernaut. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us some things you were careful of not to portray and, and words that you made sure that you did not or images you did not want to convey. Well, we uh, didn't use the word sanctification. In the yeah, we, did, we, right. didn't, we didn't use that. We mm-hmm. didn't use a lot of scripture addresses. Yeah. Um, we wanted to avoid language that was condemning. Uh, we simply wanted to present the facts, uh, and we wanted to, to appear, uh, and we wanted to do so in a very reasonable fashion, uh, in a very non-judgmental fashion, because we believe that ultimately the truth is on our side. The truth is in our favor. It's a matter of communicating that truth in a way uh, that that an objective person cannot help to come to any other conclusion but that which is the truth. Right. Non-judgmental, you don't mean we don't judge or we don't declare truth. It's the way we're communicating it, right? We didn't want to be condemning. What are we going to do about MTV? Well, um, I, right now we've we've just launched a public awareness campaign, and our focus with MTV is really to uh, raise public awareness, particularly among parents, of the nature and content and ideology that is espoused by MTV. Uh, we feel that it very closely parallels the same ideology and, and lifestyle philosophy that Abercrombie & Fitch was promoting. Um, but unfortunately, MTV has a much greater influence. They've got 350 million viewers nationwide, worldwide, excuse me, um, and the overwhelming majority of those are under the age of 19. Uh, in fact, it has been reported that by, by Nielsen that 73% of girls and 72% of boys under the age of 19, above the age of 12, watch six hours of MTV a week. Wow. So you've got this this media outlet that is communicating in a very powerful uh, format uh, through visual media, very clearly defined lifestyle philosophy. Sex is merely presented as recreation. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Pat's interview with Michael Craven as they discuss the sexualization of America. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. 
log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time right here on the air or online for more evidence and answers.